0: As we are getting started, you guys can turn to 1 Timothy 4. And we will be finishing 1 Timothy 4 this week. So we only spent two weeks in all of chapter 4. And the rest of 1 Timothy will go similarly, where we will go very quickly through the text. So once you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be looking beginning in verse 11, just from there through to the end of the chapter, and I will begin reading from there. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Preserve in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This week uh, we will be unpacking uh, the end here of uh, chapter 4 of 1st Timothy and in order to do that we need to understand how it's connected to the opening part of 1st Timothy chapter 4 but before we draw that connection and uh, kind of get a main idea going uh, we need to consider the audience that Paul is writing to. And I've brought this up a couple times in 1 Timothy. The audience that Paul is writing to, remember, is Timothy, the young pastor. So Timothy is not you or me. And so all of the application of this text, all the application of chapter four, we are in some sense slightly removed from it. Just like when we were in chapter two and we were learning about head coverings and all the, or sorry, not head coverings, we're learning about adornment of jewelry and and how women ought to dress modestly. We don't we don't do a copy and paste on that application because we're removed from that context and we're removed from being the recipients of this letter. And so when you when you hear these uh, these words from Paul, it it really has it comes out that it's a really narrow application. When he's telling Timothy uh, to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture. Well, that's something that's Timothy is commanded to do. And so unless you are Timothy himself or uh, serving in the same function in the church as Timothy is serving, these words might seem to be non-applicable. So the goal tonight is twofold. One, to understand what he's getting at to Timothy, and two, to understand how even if you're not Timothy or serving in a pastoral office, these words can in any way, shape or form benefit you as a reader of the letter of 1 Timothy. So let's pick up the argument of Paul uh, in chapter four and remember he has warned timothy now uh, earlier in really beginning in chapter one about the false teachers in the context of first timothy these false teachers are marked by an obsession with things that don't really matter uh, obsessing over all kinds of stuff but none of it being edifying to the church and paul then will turn and tell timothy focus instead on true teaching and godliness right those are the two things and then in chapter four he kind of rehashes that argument particularly if you uh, look at verse one, Uh, he says that in later times, there will some who will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to these deceitful spirits and to the teachings of demons. So this looming threat that is alluded to in chapter one is uh, re-brought up in chapter four. And then the antidote to that threat is seen in verse six, uh, which is that Timothy is supposed to put these things before the brothers, that there's false teachers out there, and in doing so, he's a good servant of Jesus Christ. And then he is gonna exhort him further, verse seven. Don't have anything to do with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So the antidote to the false teaching is Timothy's own personal discipline. And that discipline in Timothy's life is ultimately going to lead to him being able to pass on the faith to others. And so this is, this is the argument of chapter four so far. And so, and last week when we talked about this, we said, Uh, that endurance in the Christian life is something you pursue. So as Christians, we pursue enduring faithfully to the end. Uh, We don't just expect for it to happen. Uh, We trust God that it will happen, yes, but we also discipline ourselves so that we don't find ourselves wanting, uh, you know, some point in the Christian life, we walk away from the faith or abandon truth because we simply lacked discipline and resolve to persevere. And now the command or the argument in verse 11 is going to turn into a slight nuance and the application becomes even more narrowly focused on Timothy, because in verse, uh, verse 11 and following, you can hear how it seems as though only Timothy could obey these words. So when he says, command and teach these things, these things are the things Paul has previously described, you know, rebuking the false teachers, promoting sound doctrine. And now in verse 12, it's hard to think of a more specific application than that. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but rather set an example for the believers in your speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So Timothy is young by the standards of the Ephesian church. It's hard to know exactly how old he is, but he's probably some, something in his 30s. So he, and he, that would be a fairly young person to serve as an elder in the early church. Um, in fact, it's still considered fairly young today. You don't see many senior pastors who are in their 30s. You know, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, think about like John Piper and John MacArthur and guys like that. They were serving as ministers for a while, but really when they were looked up to by other ministers and seen as mature and good examples of the faith, they were into their 50s and 60s by that time. And so Timothy's youth is in some sense a threat to his ability to set a good example um, because him being a young man, he's going to have certain tendencies. And so Paul's basically saying, hey, don't let your youth show. Don't let the fact that you are young be a hindrance. And often this verse is taken to mean, hey, you can tell other people they can't look down on you because you're young. But that's not at all what the verse means. The verse is to Timothy, and Paul's telling Timothy, hey, you should not let your youth be a stumbling block for others. Meaning, just because you're young, don't act like you're young. Just because you're young, don't let other people have a hold on you in that where they can look at your behavior and say, oh, he's just a young guy who's doing this kind of stuff. That Timothy's youth should be something that is not, not a factor for his pastoral ministry. And that's because one of the dangers of youth is all of the things Paul has talked about, but particularly as it applies to men, being quarrelsome, uh, being divisive, uh, asserting your right to, the, to uh, dividing the body, Instead, what are men to do? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, men are to be lifting up holy hands, not quarrelsome. And so here, that's a sign of a mature man, right? Someone who's not dividing the church. And so Paul is telling Timothy that same kind of thing here. Timothy, make sure that your youth is, maybe even if it's true about you, is not something that people feel or observe or experience. And and they don't know you for being the young guy on the block. So uh, Timothy's supposed to not let his youth be a stumbling block, and he goes further than that, and he says, rather, you are to be an example to your congregation. Now, in 1 Timothy 3, we talked extensively about the qualifications for eldership, and among those qualifications are all these mature character traits that we looked at. And so if Timothy is to serve as a pastor and elder in the church, he's supposed to be an example for the church. And we talked about how elders, in some sense, guide the direction of the church. They in some sense can be the, the limiting factor for the health of a church. Because if you put someone as a leader in a church, uh, you're saying this is someone who's a model to follow. This is someone who's a, a good example of what faithfulness looks like. And so if Timothy's gonna be in that position, his job is to set an example for other believers, not just in how he exegetes the text of scripture, we'll get there, but also in how he talks, meaning in casual conversation, in, in serious conversation, he is a model of right Christian speech. He should, be a con- he should be a model in his own personal conduct, how he conducts his business, his affairs, his, his life. That should be a model to Christians, how he loves. That should be a model for other Christians to be able to follow and not think of him as an immature man and how he loves. As he pursues the faith, and it's unclear whether it's his trustworthiness or his own personal faith, the word can be translated either way. But in either case, uh, it's either he's supposed to be a model of trustworthiness or he's supposed to be a model of what it looks like to have faith. But in either case, you get the idea he's supposed to be a forerunner for the church uh, in Ephesus and also in purity. He's supposed to be a forerunner in that. Now, purity kind of fits under the realm of conduct, just like uh, in love and in faith also fit under the realm of conduct. Um, and really, speech, you can speak in an unloving way. so. This is not a list where it's like a neatly defined set of categories. It's like the list of the elders where Paul is listing off things that are general descriptions of what it should be like. And so Timothy supposed to be a leader in the congregation. He is supposed to resemble and model what a godly life looks like. And as I heard uh, one author uh, say in a book, if, if anyone goes to a church and asks the question, uh, what does it look like to be a mature Christian, the Christians in that church, the members of that church, should have no problem pointing to an elder in the church and saying, that's what it should look like. That, now, that might be hard to conceive of in many churches because of the way we structure elders as more uh, business kind of si- situation in many churches. But the elders should not just be people who are good at running an organization. They should be people who embody what it means to be a mature Christian. That's the idea here, both in 1 Timothy 3. Now it's echoed more specifically to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, And so that's Timothy's life, his activity, his action, his discipline. And then Paul's going to turn, and he's going to get into what Timothy's supposed to be up to, what's his job description. Uh, And his job description is actually pretty simple. You'll see it there in verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Pretty simple set of skills that Timothy is supposed to do publicly. This is the central job description of what a, a preacher or an elder is to do in a church. Uh, this is, this is the, the main job responsibilities. There might be other things that Timothy would have to do. Uh, for example, later in 1 Timothy, he's exhorted to conduct the affairs of a church in a respectable way in terms of how the church treats the widows. So in some sense, he takes a managerial role in the church to help organize. Um, He's supposed to obviously commit himself to prayer. That's something he's supposed to do. But this is, let's say, the public front-running office that Timothy is running after, and it is public reading of scripture, preaching, and teaching. Now, we typically sum all of that stuff up in, in our simple term in English when we say someone is preaching, all of that, what we say in modern, modern terms is preaching, is encompassed in verse 13 and just kind of spelled out more narrowly. So where you see just the word uh, public reading, preaching and teaching, depending what translation you're looking at, um, preaching is, is in this case, one aspect of what the, the act of preaching is. So let me explain that. When someone is preaching the word on a Sunday in a church, they're doing all three of what verse 13 describes publicly reading the word out loud, exhorting from the word, meaning they're taking the word and they're driving it home to your heart to make sure that you are told you are to be in obedience to this or to be encouraged by it or to be strengthened by it in some way, and then teaching. Uh, one, of the, one of the quotes from the text, uh, uh, this is from a commentator on the text. He, he says it this way. The wording in the original can be understood as pointing not really to a sequence, meaning individual acts, at some point you read the word, sometimes you preach it, sometimes you teach it, but rather to three intertwined and perhaps inseparable activities. Reading scripture without further comment would be incomplete and perhaps confusing. Preaching something other than the scriptures or preaching in a way that gives no instruction would be unfruitful. Teaching without the authoritative appeal that preaching provides and without the apostolic understanding of scripture would resemble misguided presentations. And Paul is writing to Timothy to oppose all of these. So he's saying you should read the word so that whatever you say is founded in the word. You should teach the principles that are associated with that text. And then also you should exhort that text to the lives of your hearers. Any one of those done in isolation of the others is not really biblical preaching. We sum all of those up when we say that's a sermon, right? In a modern context, we would say that's what a sermon is. So then, more simply and said by a different commentator, Paul urges a public ministry that reads the scriptures to the gathered Christians, exhorts them to respond appropriately, and teaches them the principles found in the text. So this is Timothy's job. We would call this expository preaching. You read the word, say what it says, and then apply that to the lives of Christians in the congregation. This is, I think, the backbone of what a church is. It's the center point of Christian worship, at least in the Protestant church. It's the center point of our worship. It's the center point of what drove the Reformation. It's the center point of what drove the book of Acts, the preaching of the word. In fact, uh, I'll read for you a quote uh, that Martin Luther wrote. And uh, I'll unpack it, but just hear these words from Luther. He says, when it comes to the scriptures, reading is not as profitable as hearing it. For it is the live voice that teaches, exhorts, defends, and resists the spirit of error. Satan does not care one hoot for the written word of God, but he flees at the speaking of the word of God. So Luther is, uh, is famous for saying things in a very black and white kind of way. He's driving home a point. Luther himself will later say, for instance, that the relationship between the preached word and the written word is one where the written word governs what can be rightly preached. So he doesn't think that scripture is to be thrown out and you just have preaching. But what he's saying is that if you were to open your Bible and read it, that's not of the same benefit to your soul as hearing the word proclaimed aloud by one who's entrusted to preach it to you. Or as Paul seems to be very concerned about here, Timothy, it is your job that while I delay, you take it upon yourself to read the word aloud, exhort people from that text, and teach it to them. Teach them in a way that corrects false teaching, which is present in your congregation. Exhort them in a way that encourages them to endure faithfully to the end, not to go into ungodliness, but to pursue godliness faithfully. And read the scripture out loud so they know that everything that you say is rooted and anchored in the message that I have given you. So the preaching of the word of God is the is the backbone of the church. And in many ways, uh, one, one author has said it this way, it is that is the Protestant church, one of the Advents in the Reformation, is the Protestant church finds its, found, found its, its uh, legitimacy, not in apostolic succession, meaning we can trace a pope who's been sitting on the throne of Rome from Peter all the way to now. We don't, they don't trace their authority in terms of the succession of apostles, but they, they find their legitimacy in the preaching that the apostles have modeled. So it's the same preaching that the apostles model for us in the book of Acts and that Paul writes about in his letters that the Protestant church says, this is what a legitimate church is. It's a church that preaches the word of God. So that's what I think Paul is getting at here to Timothy. Your church is healthy when you're preaching the word faithfully. So this is your your charge. In fact, in 2 Timothy, when Paul writes his second letter, he says by and large the same thing. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And this is, this is Timothy's job. His job is to reprove, rebuke, exhort, to teach from the scripture, to read it aloud, and to apply that to his audience. Now, you might be thinking, why is it that preaching is so important? Why can't the, the word being read in a private Bible study not be of the same kind of benefit? And verse 14 explains why verse 13 matters timothy has been gifted for this he says do not neglect your gift which was given to you through the prophecy and the body of elders when they laid their hands on you so this is not timothy doing something because it's part of his job description yes it's part of his job description but this is timothy doing something because the holy spirit of god has given him the gift to do this when god establishes his church he ministers to his church through his written word but also through his Holy Spirit. Now, in a very practical way, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church. And there's lists of what those gifts are. We tend to focus on ones about, you know, whether they're for today, not for today, the sensational ones. Preaching is a gift given by the Holy Spirit. The pastor of a church should be one who has been gifted by the Holy Spirit to do that work. The way some will say it is a seminary can give you a degree, but only God can make you a pastor. The Holy Spirit is the one who has given the gift to Timothy. So that's why Timothy is responsible for it. In the same way that if, someone has give, if the Holy Spirit has given you, Christian, the gift for hospitality, your responsibility for the life and benefit of the church is to exercise that gift faithfully. If The Holy Spirit has given you gifts of mercy. Your job for the life of the church is to exercise that gift diligently and faithfully because this is how the Holy Spirit loves the church, by pouring out and equipping the saints to do work among one another. So that preaching is not so much someone who's gifted to speak out loud. It might be a natural gifting, but way more than that, it's a spiritual gifting for the nourishment of the body. And you might know what that is like to be nurtured and and to benefit from the preaching of God's word. I certainly know what it's like when I was at exit church in college to sit under the preaching of forest ministry and just week after week to be uh, renewed and strengthened and encouraged to feel just alive with the word of God. And yes, I get benefit from sitting down and reading the word myself, but if given a choice between, you know, on a Sunday reading the word for an hour or sitting under forest preaching, I would have probably chosen sitting under forest preaching because the Holy Spirit accompanies that in a way to move through the preacher in a way that edifies the Christian. So, why verse 13 is so important is because the Holy Spirit is active in the preaching of the word. Now, some things that are worth applying from this. uh, Preaching is is something that's an in-person experience between the preacher and the congregation. We have an amazing gift of podcasts, recordings, even like YouTube videos where you can see sermons recorded and preached. And those are of benefit. In the same way that You know, you can take your favorite song that your favorite artist has recorded on Spotify and you can play it and listen to it in the car. So that's of benefit, you get some benefit of that song. But the the gap between that song played in your car on Spotify and being there in person live while it's played live in front of you by the author of the song, that's a world of difference, right? People will pay hundreds of dollars to go be in person to experience it live. That's the same gap, I would argue, between the preached word on a Sunday live to the audience and it caught up in a recording. There's some benefit, no doubt, but it's, it's a chasm of difference. And actually a very practical reality of this is uh, many times you'll have churches that they will post their sermons um, and if they do live streams, they'll have maybe one campus that broadcasts the sermon to many other campuses. But you can bet that the worship will be live at every single campus of whatever that church is. And that's because they know that broadcasting worship over a screen, you lose something. Well, you lose more in the, in the preaching being broadcast because the Holy Spirit is active and operant in the, in the real life, fleshed ministry between the, the preacher and the congregation. So Timothy is supposed to obsess himself over his role as a preacher. This is what verse 15 gets after. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself... Holy unto them, so that everyone may see your progress. Uh, Just a couple of ways this is said. Make these matters your business. Or as one translation renders it, take pains with these things. Or be engulfed in these things. Or be absorbed in these things. You are to, Timothy, give yourself wholly over to this ministry. Be obsessed with it so that everyone may see your progress, and then the thrust of it, verse 16, why should Timothy bother watching his life, his conduct, and his doctrine, his teaching and exhortation and his reading of the word aloud? Why should he watch over that closely? Because if he does so and perseveres in it, he will save not only himself, but also his members. Jonathan Edwards would say, every sermon is a evangelistic sermon every sermon is saving souls we tend to think about a sermon that saves someone's life uh winning them over to christ as the first time when they converted to christianity that's when they were saved but actually the puritans would would think about salvation as yes that moment when someone is saved but also every sermon they hear is a means of grace by which god preserves them in the faith unto the end so timothy's not just supposed to preach one amazing sermon that converts people pick up and leave and go to a different church and do the same thing. He's supposed to regularly have a rhythm of preaching, preserving in it so that he will save not only himself by his conduct and action watching over himself, but he will also save those who listen to him, his, his congregation, the people he's supposed to be doing this for. So very simple application question from this. I, I, I said, you know, a lot of this sounds like it's just for the preacher, just for Timothy. And you might've picked up on that as we went through So now I'm going to shift a little bit towards the uh, congregation, you guys. This informs your priorities as a Christian in terms of, well, where do you put your precedence? Do you focus as a Christian on private means of grace, the reading of the word and prayer, all good things? Or, and, and do you give just as much emphasis on the other means of grace which God has provided to save you, such as hearing the word preached and and having that wash over your soul to give you encouragement week over week. A very simple question of this is, do you prioritize Sunday worship and hearing the word proclaimed so that you can respond in worship, to be encouraged for the week, to be strengthened for the week ahead? When you are, let's say you're in the public worship on a Sunday or maybe here on a Thursday night, do you pay attention to how you listen to the preaching of the word as though it is the voice of God speaking to you through his spirit. What's happening here between us right now is not just me saying things that I wrote and studied throughout the week, but in a real sense, because I believe in the Holy Spirit, it's a conversation between God and you as well, between his word and your life, and he's speaking to you even though I'm saying words. And that's a a mystery, admittedly, one that I can't quite wrap my head around, and yet it is true. That the Holy Spirit moves through the preaching of the word to you in a way that you can't quite capture in a a podcast or in a book or in a recorded sermon. You can get benefit from all of those things, and I would encourage you to take advantage of them, but not quite in the same way. There's a chasm of difference. So as a hearer, uh, do you put yourself in a place to regularly hear the word of God preached? And when you're there, do you actually hear it as though God is speaking to you, to speak to you, to hear his voice? You might notice that on Sunday when we preach, uh, right before then we pray, And in that prayer, almost every Sunday we mention, Lord, would you speak to us through the one who is preaching your word today? That's not just something we say, that's something because we believe that's what's happening. And to close, uh, consider this. The Puritans, who many people consider kind of the pinnacle of Christendom, they would call it the golden era of the Christian faith. This is uh, one statistic for you. In Puritan worship, prayer could last for an hour or more, a sermon for two hours. And in their lifetime, a Puritan might hear upwards of 15,000 hours of preaching. We think about what made the Puritans who they were. Yes, strict adherence to the spiritual disciplines. Yes, they were saturated with the word in their private reading. But one of the huge contributing factors that made the Puritans who they were was that they sat under the preaching of God's word on a regular basis. Think about that. 15,000 hours of preaching. And that's what made them who they were, at least contributed to it. So I would posit uh, that what we don't need more of in Christianity today is revival worship services. Those are great. But if you want to have a Reformation, if you want to have people changed and people come to Christ and know him and love him, the regular meat and potatoes of it is the preaching of the word of God. And sitting under that preaching, hearing it, considering it, applying it, and then turning around and doing it again and again and again so that you might be washed over with the word of God. Let me pray and then we can get to discussion. Father, we thank you for your word, which we confess is living and active and operant in the reading of your word, the teaching of it, and the exhortation of it. Lord, I pray for my own heart that you would be pleased to teach me from your word. Pray for the hearts of each and every person in the congregation now that you would be pleased to minister the word to their hearts. And Lord, we trust because you say so in your word, that this is how you preserve your people, ultimately for salvation, which is the hope and the blessed assurance that we have in Christ. Pray this all in your holy name. Amen.